don't know if you know this or not. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. There's an election going on in our country. I'm not going to talk about the election much. I'm going to talk about something that comes out of the election. A, a symptom. Something I've noticed in my own heart, you've noticed it in yours. And if you haven't noticed it, you're either lying to yourself or you're amazing. One of the two. We are people filled with worry, fear, and anxiety. Yes or no? I mean, yeah, okay, good. Otherwise, Because it's a short sermon, if you say no, I'm done here. We fear a myriad of different things, and I'm not going to get any, to, but the election has brought this out. The, the worry and the anxiety and the fear were there before, and now all of a sudden in the circumstances we find ourselves culturally, they have been flushed out of our heart. They were, they're not new. They were already there. It's just now all of a sudden we get to call a spade a spade. And my question that I want us to address as we look at this story, this historical account in the chapters of First uh, Samuel, First Samuel 8, 9, and 10, is what does my worry and my fear mean? If you want to ask yourself that question, what does my worry and my fear and my anxiety mean? Another way of thinking about that is a way of asking yourself the, this question, or if, if that's too um, forward or uh, invasive, uh, ask of it about the person sitting next to you. It might be your spouse. Well, what does my wife's worry and anxiety mean for me? What does my worry, my fear, and anxiety mean? Or a better way of thinking, what does is, what is my worry and my anxiety and my fear indicate? If you have a fever, it indicates something. It indicates you have an infection somewhere in your body, likely. The fever is just simply an indication. Well, uh, what is our worry and our fear and our anxiety that are boiling over in all kinds of ways? What is that indicating? What is that revealing? It's revealing something. It means something in our heart. And I think we ought to know what that is, and we ought to be able to say, well, what do we do about that, or what's the answer to that? So the people of Israel, they had been ruled by judges for many, many, many years. If You can read the story all about it in the book of Judges. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, Samuel's rule as judge is coming to an end. And he's got a couple of sons, and they're lousy. They're taking bribes, and they're, they don't care about justice. They're judges, but they don't care about justice. And, and the, the Old Testament law has, goes into a lot of detail about their concern for justice. You weren't supposed to take bribes. You were supposed to be concerned about the lowly and the disadvantaged, and they weren't. They were concerned about enriching themselves. If you remember back to the sons of Eli, the high priest, these two yahoos kind of remind us of them, don't they? And yahoo comes from the Hebrew, if you're wondering. So the people of Israel have come to Samuel and say, give us a king. We want a king. In chapter 9, we meet this guy named Saul. Now, you guys, you know the story of Saul, but let's just think about it. This guy named Saul, he's a Benjamite, and a Benjamite uh, means that he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is the most inconsequential of the tribes, most significantly because towards the end of the book of Judges, most of them were completely wiped out through a battle that took place, a sin that occurred in their tribe, and the other tribes of Israel attacked them and killed a huge number of Benjamites. So they're very small tribe, very inconsequential group of people. And Saul was sent by his father, Kish, and he was sent by his father to go out and find their lost donkeys. 
So Saul was sent out by his father, and he was sent out with a servant. They have lost their donkeys. So they're looking all over Israel for these donkeys. I mean, these must have been blue ribbon donkeys. I have no idea. I mean, donkeys were an important animal. They're a pack animal. They're a, and, you know, they were an important animal for the running of an agrarian society. So they were sent out to find these donkeys. They're looking all over the place for these donkeys. I've never had to track a, track a donkey before. Uh, hunting season is winding up. I don't know if there's a donkey season, uh, so I don't know if you know how to track a donkey. They didn't either. They couldn't find him. They wander all over the place looking for the story. He can't find it. And finally, Saul does what any good leader does. He quits. Um, he tells you a servant, he can't find him, and now my dad's going to be worried about us. We're gonna, from Saul, we're going to hear a lot about us and me from Saul. And his servant, though, was a little more discerning than Saul was, and he, his servant says, hey, Saul, we're right here. We're close to Ramah. He doesn't say that, but we assume it's Ramah. He says, uh, the seer is here, or the prophet. Samuel's here. Why don't, you go, why don't we go ask the prophet? Hey, where's our donkeys? As a pastor, I get this all the time. <laughs> I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, and I don't know where your donkeys are. And Saul, though, of course, he says to a servant, I got no money. Normally in those days, they would pay a, an offering of sorts to the, the prophet. We have no indication that Samuel demanded it. And you'll discover in the story, he never demands payment. In fact, he gives Saul a gift. So Samuel, or Saul was uh, suffering of, uh, his understanding of approaching uh, Samuel was tainted by their culture, which says you got to take money to the prophet. No self-respecting prophet of God would demand money. And so he says, well, okay, fine, but I don't have any money. I don't have anything. And the, and the, and the servant says, well, i got a few bucks. And so they make their way into the city. They're going to find the prophet Samuel, and they come upon some women, and they were getting water from the well at the appropriate time, and they say, hey, is Samuel in town? We need to talk to him. And he said, yes, it turns out there's a gigantic feast going on at the high place where they're going to worship. They're going to sacrifice. He's going to uh, be sitting there uh, at doing the offering for the townspeople. He's just gotten into the town. He's almost, you're very lucky. He's here. Make your way on up there, and uh, you will find him. So they make their way on up to the offering place, and they run into Samuel on the way. And Saul says to Samuel, a most profound and amazing thing, he says to Samuel, he says, hey, you know where the prophet is? He doesn't recognize him. Remember, the Bible tells us about Samuel. His ministry covered the entire countryside. Everybody knew who Samuel was except for Saul. Hey, you know who the prophet is? And he says, yeah, you're going to have dinner with me, Saul. Go up, get your spot. I'll be there shortly. Because God had revealed to Samuel that somebody would approach him that day and he would be the king that would be to lead his people. So Samuel invites Saul to the dinner and, and Samuel had set aside the best cut of meat for Saul because God had revealed that he would be there with him. And so Saul is given the best cut of meat and he eats and they enjoy their time at the offering and they worship God. Saul is then invited to Samuel's house and they go up on the roof and, and Saul dismisses I should say, Samuel dismisses Saul's servant. He says, go away. Saul and I have something to talk about. And there on the roof, he says to Saul, you will be king. And Saul says, I am the least of my clan. I am the least of my house. My house and my clan come from the least of the tribes. I shouldn't be king. And Samuel, with no one else there, just Samuel and Saul, pours out a horn of oil onto his head and anoints Saul, king of Israel. And there, now in Israel, there is a throne. There is a monarchy. There is a king. 
Saul goes away, goes back home. And we learn something of Saul when he gets home. His uncle comes to him and says, what did Samuel say? The donkeys have long since returned. What did you hear from Samuel? And Saul says to him, he said, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. He says nothing about his kingship. He says nothing about being anointed by Samuel. He just simply relates to his uncle. He said, oh, I so relieved to talk to Saul, to Samuel, I should say, because he assured me that our donkeys were safe. And he said nothing. All the tribes come together, and God tells everybody to get together, and, and Samuel gathers everybody together in Samuel chapter 10. And they decide to uh, pick a king by lot. What you would do when you're picking a king by lot is they uh, would do it a number of different ways, but uh, basically you're asking God yes or no questions, and either by throwing the rocks or looking at the umum or the thumum, say that ten times fast, on the priestly garments, you would get an indication from God. And so they brought all the tribes before Israel, and the tribe of Benjamin was picked. Brought all the clans before Israel, and the household of Kish was picked. And then they brought the household of Kish before Israel, and Saul was picked. Where was Saul? Nobody, nobody could find out where Saul was. Nobody could find him. Where's Saul? Where is this guy? Where He's the king of Israel. I mean... He's been anointed already, and now the lot has chosen him. And they looked, they made, they made a diligent search for him. In fact, they searched for him harder than he searched for the donkeys. They did something he didn't do when he was searching for donkeys. What did they do? They finally come back to Samuel and said, we can't find the guy. He's six foot seven, we can't find the guy. Inquire of the Lord. So they come to the Lord and say, God, we can't find our king. Strangest prayer ever. And what does God say? Amazingly, he answers. Not yesterday. He's in the baggage. He's over there hiding. In the outskirts of town, normally associated with their military convoy, was the baggage where the, the military and the army would stow their things while they're in battle. And it's not unusual to imagine that the military would be present at the anointing of a king. And so Saul has made his way out to the convoy and hid himself amongst the baggage of the military convoy. They drag him out. And they make him king. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of being king. And they explained to the people what is expected of the king and of the people. And then he dismisses them. And then finally at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10. To conclude the narrative. It says this. A bunch of guys, a bunch of valiant military guys joined Saul. And they were going to support him in his kingship. But then there were a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. And they said, this guy can't save us. And Saul's response was to do nothing. Saul is appointed the first king of Israel. The joy of God's kingdom, we're going to learn about. The joy of God's kingdom. Uh, and, and, and God has a kingdom, and he's beginning his kingdom to build his kingdom with the people of Israel. And he's going to do his redemptive work through the people of Israel. And now he has established a king amongst his people. Why did the people of Israel choose to have a king? Why did they say, God, we need a king? And to answer that question, you need to look at 1 Samuel verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 19. And look with me there if you have your Bible open. Samuel had tried to convince them that they shouldn't have a king because he would tax them. The people refused to listen to Samuel, verse 19. No, they said, we want a king over us. 
Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to listen, lead us, and to go before us and fight our battles. Why do they want a king? They need somebody to lead them and to fight their battles. What their fears reveal is what they really want. They want safety from their enemies if they could just have a king who would protect them from their enemies. And if they could just have a king who would lead them into prosperity and peace, then everything would be okay. We need a king to give us safety. And we need a king to give us prosperity. Give us a king. Give me a king, they would say. We want to be able to live like the other people in Canaan. We want to be able to live at peace because we've got a great king who will fight our battles. And we want to be able to live at peace because we know there's plenty of food in the pantry. And the vineyard is full and the flocks are plump. And everything is going swimmingly because we have a king who has provided us with prosperity and safety. And in doing so, they have rejected God. Why had they rejected God when they asked for a king to provide them leadership in the prosperity and safety? Why? Because God fights their battles. Has God fought their battles up to this point? Only about a thousand times. He had lead them. He fought the, at the time. The, the greatest military power when they left Egypt was Egypt. And they, God de completely defeated them by, with one technique. Run away. So Israel runs away and he drops the Red Sea on them. We need a king to fight our battles. The massive horde of Assyria invades Israel, he sends Gideon in with 300 guys, and they completely rout them. Who has been fighting their battles? God has been fighting their battles. So in saying we need a king to fight our battles and provide safety is for them to say, we don't like God fighting our battles. We don't like the safety he is providing. We want a king to do it, like every other nation that has it. What about their prosperity? What about the food they eat? Has God provided for them in that regard? All through the wilderness, they had all the, the bread they could eat. They had all the meat they could eat. They had all the water they could drink. In fact, it says this about their shoes. They wandered around the, the, the uh, wilderness for 40 years, and their shoes didn't wear out. Anybody have anybody parents in their house with kids? Wouldn't that be fantastic? If they could just make the, invent a shoe. It never wears out, and it just gets bigger. It just expands. I mean, it's unbelievable. God has provided all their food, all of their provisions, all of their clothing, all of their safety, and he, they say, God, we don't like the manner in which you're doing it. Their fear revealed that either they didn't trust God or they didn't like the covenant that God had given them, which I think it was both. And they wanted a king. The fact is they wanted a king because the king in their mind was a little bit better of a God than the God they were serving. Their fear revealed that. Because God had already provided everything they were asking for from this king. They just didn't like the one who was providing it. They wanted that stuff to come from a king instead of from God himself. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 17. You can turn there or just make note of it and listen. In fact, Moses and God himself anticipated that the people of Israel would want a king. And so they wrote right into the law the duties of a king. And I'm going to read it and then just make a couple of comments on it before we go back to 1 Samuel. When you enter the land, this is Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord 
your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it, and you have settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Saul's got that. He's a Benjamite. Uh, do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not your brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. He must not make the people return to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord has told you, don't go back there. Why would a king need a whole bunch of horses? Well, horses were sort of the battleship or um, aircraft carrier of the time, tip of the sphere. You got a horse, you got a chariot, and some good guys who know what they're doing with those things, you can't lose. God is saying, if you appoint a king over you, I just want you to remember one thing. Once you get that king, make sure his military is lousy. Well, why would God say that? I want to make sure, I want you to make sure, once you have a king, I want you to make sure this guy has a, a piecemeal military. Swordsmen, good. Archers, no problem. Guys with slings and stones, thumbs up. State-of-the-art iron chariots with horses and horsemen to ride them? No. I want you on purpose in your king to make sure you have to trust me. He intentionally writes into their law that they must trust him because the way he has written it, they will always be exposed to their enemies. There will always be a risk of invasion and defeat. The only victory here is not their military because he is guaranteed without horses their military will always be second rate. He wants their king to come in weak that they might trust him. Now you see why people didn't like the king. God was... They want, they want God to set up a situation where they don't need God anymore. If we have a big enough military, we don't need to worry about God anymore. It gets tiresome always having to pray, for, pray to God for deliverance. He says, no, come in. No horses, no chariots. David followed that rule. He had captured a bunch of horses later on in David's career. He captured a bunch of horses from, from an enemy, and what did he do to them? He hamstrung them all. He said, I'm not going to have these horses. That's not God's purpose. He says this in continuing on Deuteronomy 17. The Lord is telling you, don't go back to Egypt. Don't take many wives. We'll come back to that. And this third one, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What's he hitting on are two things. We want a king to lead us into prosperity. We want a king to lead us into battles. And God has said already hundreds of years earlier, if you get a king, make sure he has a weak military and he's broke on broke. I'm exaggerating. Make sure your king still requires dependency on the Lord. If his bank accounts are flush and there's gold-paved streets and he has no need of the Lord, you will never come to me for sustaining strength. Who would want this kind of king? The, the king that God has told them to have is precisely the opposite of the king they wanted. God has already told them, if you're going to have a king, make sure he has to depend on me. If you're going to have a king, make sure you will have to depend on me for both your strength and your prosperity. The fact is, in the hearts of the people of Israel, turning back to 1 Samuel, the fact is, in the hearts of the people of Israel, the issue is not so much that they wanted a king, they wanted to get to a place where they did not need this God anymore. What a pain he is. 
It's like a ball and chain, nothing but obligations and rules and regulations and offerings. And man, if we had a king, guess what? We, could con- we can control the king a little, but this God, he's, he doesn't listen to anybody. It's almost like he's king of the universe, drives us nuts. If we had this kind of king, we won't need God. This started in the garden. God says to Adam and Eve, there's a tree right there. If you eat that tree, it's going to give you the knowledge of good and evil. What I want you to do is not eat that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. And we all know what the fruit of that tree was. Steak. I mean, an apple tree. That's not tempting. Prime rib hanging off a tree. Meat in that sucker. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I'm sorry. Back to what we're saying. So did God want Adam and Eve to be ignorant of good and evil? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Did God want them to be ignorant of good and evil? Of course not. He has made them in his image. He is the all-wise, all-knowing God. He wanted them to know all about good and evil. How were they to obtain that knowledge? By walking with God and asking him all about it. What does God do after they have eaten the fruit of the tree? What's the first thing we discover God doing? He comes into the garden walking into the cool of the day. Why? Because that's what he did. All they had to do was, God, now if we eat that, we get knowledge of good and evil, right? Yeah. So what's that all about? Let's take a walk. Let's walk by the steak tree. And let me explain to you. But see, Adam and Eve are like the rest of us in our rebellion at heart. I want that thing, but I want what I want without having to bother with the relationship with God. What a pain. What a load. Hauling this guy everywhere. That's where it starts. I mean, if Adam and Eve would have just gone to God in relationship, do you think he would have withheld them, withheld from them any of the knowledge that he could part? Of course not, because he has made them in his image. They just wanted knowledge and wisdom without having to bother with God. Israel wanted a king. They wanted prosperity and safety without having to depend on God himself. God says, I want you to have a king who intentionally limits his prosperity and his power and his safety so that it will drive you to pursue covenant relationship with me. In fact, one of the primary duties of the king was to tell people bad news. We're sunk. We've got no military and no money. We're all going to die. So join me in prayer as we seek God's provision. Who wants that job? Well, nobody wants that job, including Saul, who was hiding in the baggage, not telling his uncle. He knew what this was all about, and he didn't want anything to do with it. The king's job was to drive the people of Israel into covenant relationship with God. That's why in Deuteronomy 17, the duties of the king are outlined very specifically. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. What's job one when you become king? Get a big blank scroll and make a copy of the Bible for yourself. And you can't select all print. You have to get a pen out and dip it in ink and write the whole thing out. Have you tried reading it? It's long. Job one for a king. Write your own copy. Write it out. He is to write for himself. Don't give it to a servant to do it because God wants it on his heart. You have to do it. Write out a copy of this law. Take it from the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life. How many days of his life is he to read it? Every day. 
He's got to have it in his hip pocket. It's right there. It's hanging out. And he pull it out, read it when he's at the bus stop and doesn't have anything else to do. He's to do it so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law. This is what basically God is saying. If you're going to have a king, I want you to make sure you have a king that does the right thing, that leads you to me. And to do that, you need to know the law. And the king needs to have the law. Saul didn't even know who the prophet was. He wasn't going to be leading them in the law. What does worry reveal? Give me a king. Worry reveals in us, we want the things of God without the relationship with God. We want his safety. We want his provision. We want him, we want him to take care of all that stuff and then leave me alone. If there was any way we could have all of those things without having to go to this God and ask him and plead with him and seek him in relationship, we would. That's the default position of the human heart is how can I get this without having to bother with God? It's, it's built into our flesh. It's, it's the rebellion you were born with, and as Christians, we still fight with it. And that worry and that anxiety and that fear bubbles up because we think, why can't I just solve this problem without God having to intervene? Why do we hate having to wait for God? That word I just used, what was it? Wait. Does God answer and hear all prayer? Yes. Does he do it according to our time frames? No, not as much. Does he always answer the way we want? No, but we can control a king. We can rebel against an earthly king. God, it doesn't affect him. He's God. Give me a king. We miss the joy of God's kingdom when we demand all of his things and do not want a relationship with him. Secondly, let's take a look at the life of Saul himself. And he said, not give me a king, but he said, give me a kingdom. He was motivated here in his life, and we're going to see it through the balance of his life in 1 Samuel. He was motivated not by relationship with God or to seek a kingdom that glorifies God. He was certainly hit or miss at best. There are three things I want to indicate that he was motivated by. Number one, to persevere, or not persevere, preserve his life. Number two, to preserve the status quo. And number three, to preserve his pleasure. God says, here, Saul, here's your kingdom. And he doesn't tell his uncle. Why doesn't he tell his uncle? What if his uncle makes fun of him? Or what if his uncle rejects his kingdom? What if his uncle rejects Saul as king, maybe because his uncle knows a thing or two about Saul, and Saul's kingdom is all of ten minutes long? Because word gets out, Saul's family doesn't even support him. What does he do when they cast lots to find out he's king? He's hiding in the baggage. Why is he hiding in the baggage? I would suggest he's hiding in the baggage because he wants to see how this is going to be received. If you get picked for king and the people don't want you king, what is the outcome of that? Uh, Usually not a good one. So he wants to say, well, are the people going to be into my kingship or not? Because I don't want to be king if they're not into it. And so he wants to preserve his life. He wants to make sure he's safe. If he's going to be king, he wants to preserve and make sure he's going to be safe in it and and his life is going to continue on. He wants to make sure everything's copacetic if he's going to follow this leading of God. Give me a kingdom, God, but make sure it's safe for me. Give me a calling, God, but make sure everything's covered. All the bases are covered. Everybody likes me. Everybody's happy. Secondly, he wants to preserve the status quo. He wants to keep everything cool. 
What's the other one? Keep everything copacetic. He's got these agitators who come out, and they say, we don't think Saul is king. He's a lame I mean, maybe it's not in my translation. Saul's a lame He's never going to save us. What should Saul's response have been when he had agitators who said, he's not king, he's never going to save us? Two things. Who made him king? God did. Like it or not, God made him king. He should have immediately rooted out the rebellion in his people against God himself. Not against his kingdom, but he should have gone to the, Why do you rebel against the covenant of God? But he, had no, he didn't care about the covenant of God. He didn't care about the... As long as everything was cool. He should have immediately gone to these agitators and say, you will not rebel against the covenant of God. If you're going to rebel against God himself, the consequences will be swift and severe. Look at the life of David. He did it often. He wanted to preserve the status quo. He should have understood that he should have understood that the kingship that he was being given was from God. It wasn't an optional assignment. It wasn't well. Okay, I'll be king because God has called me to king, be king as long as it works out. He wanted to just maintain the status quo, keep everything cool. He didn't want to agitate things. Why did God want him to be king? To drag a rebellious people out of broken relationship into covenant relationship with God himself. He was going to have to destroy the status quo. He had no interest in doing it. He wanted to preserve his life and preserve the status quo. And finally, he was going to preserve his pressure, pleasure through taxation. Taxing both people's goods and their money and their labor. He wanted a good life and he was going to get it. And nobody was going to get in the way of it. The king here, Saul, wanted a kingdom to suit his purpose, not God's purpose. What was God's purpose in having a kingdom? That the people of God might be called into covenant relationship with God and forward-looking to a king who would come who would be eternal. Paul wanted a kingdom to suit his own purpose and his own pleasure. Or as Saul might say, if I can save myself, I won't need God. If I can save myself, if I can figure this out politically and with cunning and hiding in the baggage. I won't need God to give me a strong kingdom because I'll be smart enough to pull it off on my own. And we reflect on Gideon, who was not mighty, he was not powerful, but he had God, and he conquered a giant army. Deuteronomy 17, 17, we read it earlier. The command was threefold. Don't have many horses, don't have lots of gold, and what was the third one? Don't have many wives because they would lead you astray. In the pursuit of pleasure of the royal household, he said, you will be led astray. And this is precisely the direction that Saul is going. He is pursuing his own fleshly desires in his royal appointment. He says, give me a kingdom, but not the God who would grant one. The duty of the king was to bring the people into covenant relationship. Instead, he was going to pursue his own fleshly desire. It's a question maybe you've rattled around in your head a little bit, but do we have a pleasurable kingdom of our own? I, I would suggest we do. I mean, we've got a pretty good life. Even the, the lowest income among us uh, has food on the table. I've said it this way before, but I'm going to say it again just as a reminder. The problem we face in a kingdom of pleasure is this as Christians. God is great, but he's not the best thing I have going. I mean, I love God. I mean, he's awesome. I mean, he's really good. When, when I'm feeling down, he gives me that happy, happy, joy, joy feeling. 
but he's really not the best thing I have going. Got a great job, got a great family, got a vacation I'm looking for, whatever it is, right? That's ple- this is where Saul found himself. He said, yeah, I'm into God. I mean, he gave me the kingdom, but I got a lot of good things. I got a lot of irons in the fire that are, I don't even know if God's going to make the top 10 list. What I would really like is to be able to pursue all these things I really like, have God provide them, and then God, okay, go on break. You're good. I mean, you gave it. That's what I needed. You gave me what I needed. Skedaddle. Cramping my style. God is great, but he's not the best thing I have going. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells of the guy who's walking across a field, discovers a treasure, and he doesn't disclose it. He goes and he sells everything he has because in the moment of finding that treasure, he realizes he has nothing as valuable as that. So he sells everything he has to buy the field with that treasure in it. That's a different perspective than Saul has. It's God is this treasure. This happened at the very beginning. Remember the Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel, God says to the people, okay, get out of the garden. No more steak trees for you. Spread out. Have kids. Go. Cover the whole face of the earth. Do your thing. Crank kids out. Have Spread out. Multiply. Be fruitful. And so they all gather in one city and build a big tower and say, let's build ourselves a tower that reaches all the way to heaven. Why would they want to do that? If we all get together, they would say, in rebellion against God, maybe we can get to the point where we don't need this God. He's such a bore. And God judges them and spreads them out nonetheless. The first thing we said, what does worry and anxiety reveal? Well, the fact is it reveals a rebellion in our heart where we say we want God to provide for us prosperity and safety and then go away. We want to get to a point where we have everything we need so we don't need God. The other thing that worry and anxiety reveals as it does in the life of King Saul is it reveals that God, although maybe perhaps great in our minds, is not the greatest thing we have going on. Can you lose God once you have him in Christ? The answer is no to that. You can't lose him. So worry reveals that if I were to lose some other things that I'm worried about, that my life wouldn't measure up anymore. You still have God. Worry reveals that we have a lot of great things going in our life and that perhaps God doesn't make the top ten. By way of closing, I want to connect the dots here from Saul to David to King Solomon to King Jesus. Uh, Matthew 6. I'm going to read it just for the sake of time. I'm just going to read this and then connect the dots for us. This is a passage you're familiar with, uh, but listen to it nonetheless. Therefore, this Jesus speaking, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, Is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap. They don't store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying uh, can add a single hour to to his life? Matthew 6, 25 through 27 is where that's found. So Jesus is coming to his people and saying, you're worried. I mean, just like people of Israel are worried. We don't know where all this stuff is going to come from. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about this. God is going to take care of it. 
How will worry help? All it does is reveal that you aren't really uh, trusting the Lord or having him as your uh, priority. What Jesus is calling us to do in uh, Matthew chapter 6 is to seek the king, to seek to have a king just like Israel did, but instead of seeking a king that will separate us from God, to seek a, a king who will take us to God. He wants us to have everything we need. He wants us to be taken care of. Uh, and he says, I want you to seek a king who will provide everything you need, up to and including eternal life. Seek a king who will take you to God, not like Saul who took his people away from God. You need a king to address your worry. And the only real, the, the only real way to address the anxiety and fear we have is to get into the presence of God himself. The only way to get into the presence of God himself is by Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, listen, don't worry about it. Just come to me. I'm going to take you to God. Interestingly, he compares himself with Solomon. Look at it in Matthew 6, 28. Why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed as these. So Solomon in all of his pomp and all of his circumstances... Gold stacked up next to his bed. He had a bedstand. It was just bars of gold, probably. He pursued, he pursued God with, with a half heart, but mostly he pursued the pleasures of this life. And, and Jesus, it's, it's almost silly. He spent his entire life to get that one suit of clothes. It doesn't even measure up to a lily. What a futile life that was. And Solomon agreed as much in Ecclesiastes. He says, listen, don't... Don't seek all the things of this world and expect your worries to go away. They will never go away. The only way to have our worry and anxiety addressed is to seek the kingdom of God, to seek the kingdom of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Reading on verse 30, if, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is burned, how much more will God take care of your needs? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? This is what he says in verse 32. Even the pagans do all that. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. What is he saying? He's saying, set all that stuff over there where it belongs. Seek the kingdom of God through the king, Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and putting God in his right position in our life. And he says, in so doing, God will address the other things as he sees fit. Worry just simply reveals that we aren't seeking first the kingdom of God, we're seeking something else. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God. How do we seek first the kingdom of God? John 14, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, Jesus says, you will know the Father. How do we seek first the kingdom of God? We set aside our own proclivity to rebel in our heart and pursuing our own silly desires. And we say, God, I need, I need the Father. I need to have access to God himself. There is something precious and, and sweet about being able to step into the throne room of God and just hang out. And Jesus says, I'll grant you that. You can come and see the Father as often as you would like. 
There's no sin that will keep you from his presence. There is no rebellion that I can't fix. There is no brokenness that I can't heal. If you will come to me in faith, I will take you to the Father and you will know him wholly. And when you have tasted of the Father, you will have lost your taste for everything else. Jesus only offers us God himself. I'm thankful for the graciousness of God that on a routine and daily basis we're over and over and over again saying, God, please just give me your stuff. And there's a place to make requests for God. But always, Jesus is seeking to draw us through need and through fear and anxiety to set those things aside and say, but wait, I still have the Father. I still have the very presence of God having lost all else. Jesus, in fact, gives us God himself. We have good news for those of us who came in here worried and full of anxiety and fear and then just discovered that it reveals you're a rebellious sinner. The cool thing is Jesus is into rebels. I mean, it's just what he's into. I don't understand it. It's one of those things we want to ask him. I'm thankful he is into rebels. Frankly, it's all there is. But sometimes we think God is into the goody two-shoes. Jesus saves rebels. He takes hearts with clenched fists, shook towards heaven, saying, God, where are you? And he says, I'm a coming, and I will heal you, and I will give you God himself. He gives us the Father by shedding his own blood. He died for the rebels and the sinners. He dies for us when we say, God, give me a kingdom. God, give me my kingdom. Come on, God, my kingdom's falling apart. Where is it? And he says, I'll die for you again today. He dies for us when we say, give me a king, God. I want a king in my pre- I want a king here who's gonna give us everything we need so we don't have to worry anymore, all this stuff we're afraid of. And God said, don't worry about it. I know you're rebellious. I got you covered. Come taste and see that I am good. Shouldn't we do that? Here's what I wanna give you a challenge today when you worry this week. It's just a challenge. You, don't have to, you can ignore it if you want. I don't care. I mean, I do a little bit. I'll be offended and stuff. <laughs> this little thing, what you want to do is, is look for that worry button to hit up. Yeah, you, I mean, you probably know what it is for you. Yeah, for me, my ears start turning red. Now you're going to be watching for it. Don't do that. That's mean. <laughs> you, start going, oh, you start getting tense. Just sit right there. Just say, God, I, I don't need this kingdom. God, I'm sorry. For some reason, I'm all bound up in what that is. Whatever that is. God, what am I doing? I have you. Thank you for your grace again. It's going to drive you nuts. Now I've told you to do it. You realize how much you're doing it. It's all day long. And guess what you just spent the day doing? Coming before the throne of God. You think he's into that? Oh, yeah. You spend the day repenting of your worry all day long every day. I think God's okay with that. You will taste and see the Lord is good every single time you do it. God, I'm doing it again. He says, come on in, we're good. And he will take that worry and he will turn it into joy.